Barry Whitehead joins Vince Tracy. Finding those items in the news that you might have missed. So, a very good day. Welcome, everybody. It's the 25th of uh, May, and the year is absolutely whizzing by here up in the mountains. It's absolutely lovely. Not too um, warm, not too cold. It's um, no wind at the moment. So, I would say almost perfect. Let's find out what it's been like for Terry um, as we go down the mountain. And, Terry, how are you today? I'm very good, Vince. I'm a bit tired, a bit knackered. I've been driving around most of the afternoon, but uh, finally got in now so I can just do the interview with you. Yeah, it's lovely weather at the moment. It's very, very nice. Very unusual. I'm um, expecting a lot hotter than this, but uh, it's lovely. Yeah, it's strange because with the weather being the way it was during the week, you half expected yeah. it to be, um, you know, certainly it, it, different to what we've been having. But what can I say? You, you have what yeah, you've I got. Beat, uh, Peaked 36 degrees it was a week ago in Alicante. Was it really? We're down, about, we're down to about 22, 23 now. Yeah. But it's very pleasant. Okay, well, let's find out then as we go first to um, a story from Italy. Aiton uh, Biran, the sole survivor of a horror cable car crash in Italy, which killed his parents, his brother, and great grandparents, was protected by his father, who was wrapping his son in an instinctive embrace. Uh, this is according to what the medics have told us. Uh, the hug protected Aiton from blows which ultimately killed all 14 other passengers and left him in intensive care in hospital, suffering multi multiple broken bones and potential brain damage. Doctors say he will undergo a head scan today to see how badly injured he is. Meanwhile, prosecutors have opened a manslaughter probe into the accident, which happened around midday on Sunday near Lake Maggiore, uh, saying they want to know how a, a, lead, a lead cable, or is it a lead cable, must be a lead cable, which was pulling the car uphill, snapped, and why an emergency brake failed to grab hold of a secondary support cable, allowing the car to roll backwards, fall off the track, and plunge 65 feet to the mountainside. I think that must be a lead cable, Terry. What do you think? No, it'll be lead. No, it'll be lead. It won't be a lead. It's very soft. It'll be a lead cable. A lead cable. A lead cable probably. Lead cable probably refers to the main drive cable uh, oh. that pulls it up. Um, oh. But I mean, should that go, it should automatically break and stop. But obviously, it has there's something gone very wrong there somewhere. I mean, I, I really love cable cars. I'm fascinated by them. But uh, and my wife isn't. We did actually get stuck on one once. And she wasn't happy about that, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, well, it's everyone's nightmare, I think, because uh, normally they're, by, by nature, they're very high in the air to give you the view that you're looking for. Um, but it won't stop me going on one. It won't. No. Well, I've got to say, I'm, I'm torn between the cable cars and the, um, you know, the ones that go up the side of the mountain, uh, uh, funiculars, I think they're called, aren't they? That's it, funiculars, yeah. yeah. Um, because I know I've been on the cable car to the Mont Blanc, to the very top, and uh, much as it was very enjoyable once you get up there, um, that was sort of, obviously, uh, it was very, very high. Uh, one of the highest in Europe, if I'm led to believe correctly. 
Um, and I also went to one in California, which was very, very high and overlooked Palm Springs. So I do know these things, you know, they uh, are fantastic to go on, but um, it must be an absolute horror and nightmare to try and keep them um, totally safe for everybody. Well, they're very, they're very simple. There's nothing really complicated about it. It's obviously a, a lack of maintenance gone wrong somewhere. I think uh, somebody should have been checking these things, and as usual, they've just put a cross on it and sat down at a cup of coffee. Uh, but, but you mentioned funicular railways. That, that's strange because I, I tried desperately two years ago. Uh, I, I sort of, in inverted commas, invented uh, a funicular type railway for uh, a client. He, he needed a lift to get up to his house, which is very high up off the road. And uh, it wouldn't be possible because of uh, construction restrictions to the neighbours, etc. Because basically a lift is a very tall tower. Um, so I thought, well, if I can keep it to the ground, why can't I do a funicular railway? So I took it to the um, uh, the architect in Lanuthia and ran it through him. He said, that's brilliant. I said, yeah. He said, I said, can I do it? He said, no. I said, why? He says, could believe it. There is not one in Spain until somebody builds one and the whole process gets homologized, is it? <laughs> uh, homologated or homologated. Uh, it, you, cannot, you cannot have one. He said, I'm, I'm full agreement. It's a perfect solution to the job. It ticks all the boxes. It won't contribute any any building regs. It gets the guy and his shopping up to the house very comfortably, uh, and it was a, it was it would work brilliantly. But I it would cost me a fortune to get that because I'd have to be a test case, have it completely documented and tested uh, for usage. I can't afford that. Neither could the client. So Spain doesn't have funicular railways. I have tried. Um. The, what's the one that's over by... It's in the Basque Country, half in France yeah. and half in Spain. Um, it's certainly like a funicular, but I don't know whether it is. It's... Oh, I, don't know. I thought you were going to mention the one in Portugaletti, which is a, a, cable, a horizontal cable car. I'll up it up in the Basque Country. Yeah, in Portugaletti, it's on the coast, just along from Bilbao. There's, there is a horizontal... It's a horizontal cable car goes from one side of the river to the other. Ah, the swing bridge you're talking about, aren't you? No, no, no. It's a horizontal cable car. Rather than going up a mountain, it goes horizontally. It oh. gets you from one side of the river to another in a cable car swung on cables. It's in Portugaletti. It's um, it's a small port town uh, the north of, uh, just well, just west of Bilbao. I don't know whether we're talking about the same thing, but you do know that you, you know the swing bridge at Bilbao? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I went on that, it was very, very similar to the... Uh, it used to be the Warring, not the Widner's Runcorn Bridge that crossed the Mersey. And it was so right. similar that I went to the office and wanted to look into the origins of it. And apparently that one is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, in Europe. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. Well, I had many, many a good year working up in... Uh in Bilbao and the Basque Country. My favourite part of Spain, to be honest with you. I could I could live there very happily. Very happily. Yeah. Lovely, lovely, lovely people. Lovely I must admit, people. Uh, it, it is a favourite part of mine as well. Um, oh, with family up there, of course, they do tend to show you around and show you the little bits and pieces yeah. that uh, the tourists don't always see. I'm going yeah, to go well, next... It's, it's so green, isn't it? it I'm just on sidetracking. But it's very, it's very green up there. I mean, for, for a Brit, it's almost like a home from home. 
but the temperatures cranked up a bit. Not as hot as we get in the south, but uh, uh, and you get a fair bit of drizzle and rain in the winter, but much more, much more agreeable climate than the UK. Well, this is where we really started our uh, our journey down to Spain because uh, the boys, of course, being surfers, um, they yeah. started going to places like um, um, I can't remember the name of the one just up the coast. Uh, the ones going into France and northern yeah, Spain. Around there, yeah, Sebastian, Yeah, I mean they're absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, uh, and of course, the thing is, as you say, it's just like being possibly in uh, Cornwall or Wales, really. Yeah, well, it's the Atlantic, you know, it is. And uh, where do I go? Oh, yeah, Castro. I think I mentioned before, a place, little place called Castro Urdiales. It's a beautiful, like, fishing village. Uh, again, between Bilbao and Santander, past Portugaletti. And you would swear blind, Vince, you were in Cornwall if you were there. It's it, the granite keys, the roofs, the tiles, the buildings. You would swear blind you were in a Cornish fishing village. Absolutely identical. Obviously, the... You, if you sail due south from Cornwall, you can, you can hit that part of the coast. So you can imagine an, an interchange of ideas. OK, Terry, I'm going to play a jingle and then we're going to move on. And uh, this will be about uh, the north of Spain. Coming to you from downtown Benidorm, on the Costa Blanca in sunny Spain. Europe calling. Finding the news you might have missed. Special guest, of course, as ever, is Terry Whitehead. And we're looking at police in Gerona breaking up a criminal gang, fraudulently selling high-end vehicles acquired from Italy. The National Police, together with the Mossos de Squadra uh, officers, have broken up an organisation uh, that allegedly attempted to fraudulently acquire high-end sports vehicles to achieve ownership and subsequent resale, according to the police statement. Uh, the joint police investigation began last February when a worker in an IT UV station, that's the um, MOT testing stations, uh, noticed that the documentation of a vehicle presented for the test corresponded to the registration at another high-end vehicle from Italy and showed signs of irregularities with indications of being falsified. After a further investigation, it came to light that at least another four luxury vehicles were already allegedly in the same situation. And so the investigating officers contacted international police cooperation channels and all the detected vehicles were originally registered in Italy, according to 20 Minutos de España. It was soon discovered that the person carrying out the fraud was allegedly acquiring these high-end vehicles with rental contracts from Italian companies through a company based in Girona, and that in uh, the locality he initiated the re-registration procedures without knowledge of the legitimate owners providing allegedly falsified documentation with which they tried to accredit their purchase and then finally sold them. It was found out by the police in Hirona that the vehicles were being sold for a lot less than their expected market value for a vehicle of its type and the four cars that were intercepted and prevented from being sold on by this police operation had a value exceeding £770,000. That, that's, 
well that that's great work by the police though isn't it because to yeah. just spot those type of irregularities i mean that, that's pretty good going isn't it oh yeah it is um, i'm amazed that everyone's even trying to get away with it that was well to uh, 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 high-end vehicles like that it must be there aren't, can't be that many around and if they've been stolen surely they'll be quite uh, visible to the police shall we say that the this type of vehicle is worth stopping or looking at whereas if, if somebody had, had, a, had a, a, a criminal business uh, stealing Ford Escorts for flogging them would we'll probably never get caught mind you probably never sell one either <laughs> but uh, it does seem strange that vehicles of such amazing value um, can be purchased obviously they've been purchased cheap, cheaply I presume and nobody asks a question do they I suppose well I think I mentioned it could have even been to yourself that uh, up in Denia I've never seen so many high end vehicles as I've been seeing over the past few weeks I mean they really do have some very very uh, tasty cars up that way and um, it, it's quite nice a nice place yeah, uh, I mean the the yeah. size of the boats and everything is is absolutely massive as well. Wow. So uh, there's lots of money in the area. Um, going to the geographical location, we're talking about near Barcelona. Am I right yeah. in saying that this is in the northeast or the southeast of Spain? No, it's the northeast. It's it's virtually halfway between Barcelona and the French border. It's, so. Um, so where would we place Benidorm? Because that's right bang in the middle, isn't it, between north and south? Well, we're always southeast, really. I've always got to say Benidorm southeast. Costa del Sol is the south. Uh, the north, the northeast is Catalonia, where Girona is. Um, so it's, it's 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 north of Barcelona, and Barcelona is like an hour drive from the French border, whereas we're a five-hour drive to uh, from Benidorm to Barcelona. So it yeah. gives people an idea that it's a big country, Spain. People don't realise how big it is. Well, I, I often speak to um, my Spanish students in the English class, and when I try to explain to them the difference between the size of Spain, which is about four times the size of England in, in landmass, yeah. and then they don't seem to understand that their population is not 50 million, whereas England alone is around about 65, probably nearer 70 million these days. Yeah, yeah, it must be, yeah, 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 because Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland don't make up a lot. I yeah. Think Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is about six, six million or something, the whole lot. I think Scotland, um, Scotland is about five million, Wales is about four, and Northern Ireland just the one million. Um, all right. So I've even seen in, in the books here in Spain where they refer to Wales and Scotland as regions of England. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they would do. Okay. okay. Uh, next, then, I will look at the body of a man which has been found inside a dinosaur. This is a statue in a Barcelona suburb. Police are investigating the death of the 39-year-old who reportedly fell into the statue while trying to retrieve a mobile phone dropped inside the papier-mâché figure. On Saturday morning, a man and his son out playing in the area noticed a strange smell coming from the statue which stands in the suburb of Santa Coloma de Gramanet, outside the cubic building. The man alerted authorities after spotting the body through a crack in the Stegosaurus leg, which, uh, I mean, 
you, you know, you go to the website and you look at uh, things people are writing, uh, which really they think are quite funny. Uh, I, I mean, that isn't in the slightest funny. That's a terrible way to, to end your life, isn't it? My eating by Stegosaurus. They just found some older remains, you know, of, 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 of Homo sapiens fat inside. No, I mean, the guy's I, I, he's obviously dropped his phone. Dropped and, off. you know. Well, Darwinian principles, Vince. Well, they yeah. always come out on some. Yeah. The stupid will die off. Okay, uh, we go next to a story which I don't think is a new story, but it's a revisiting of something that we do often talk about, and I'm pretty sure that uh, you'll want to make a comment as we talk about a British expat couple who've been living in a garage in Spain for 13 years after their £350,000 retirement villa was bulldozed. Well, they've now finally won legal status for their property. It's a small victory, but it means Helen and Len Pryor, both 77, can now get their garage home hooked up to mains, water and electricity. The couple's retirement dream became a nightmare after local authorities sent in builders to demolish their luxury two-storey villa in 2008 due to planning irregularities. Um, the guy, uh, Len, had a heart condition and was so upset he collapsed as the building was bulldozed and was rushed to hospital. The couple were forced to convert the garage and two small workhouses into a makeshift home where they've been living ever since. They've made do with bottled water and power from a noisy generator using buckets to collect rainwater that drips through the leaky roof. Their reality is far from relaxing, sunny retirement, and the couple imagined, uh, of obviously, different times um, when they up sticks and uh, join Spain from Wokingham in Berkshire. Um, one of the comments came from uh, somebody in London. The small-town Spanish are natural bureaucrats. I knew a family who got the rubber stamp from the local authority and the national authority as instructed but nobody told them that they also had to get one from the regional authority as well and they lost their home terry this is your sort of area of expertise and i'm sure that you've heard some and seen some horror stories over the years it's very true i, I met a couple actually who living in the garage before it might be them but it's not they were living in the garage because they were conned out of uh, their money they gave it to a british a so-called british builder who uh, kept sending them photographs of the construction developing and asking for more money for each stage. When they eventually flew over, there was nothing built. We were sending them photographs of somewhere else. And they ended up living in, um, in, the, in literally, in, in Chaosa, in somebody's garage, because they had nowhere to stay while they tried to pursue the matter. Uh, this was, that's going back a long time. Uh, I do remember seeing this particular car. I remember seeing the building being demolished on, on TV. Yeah. And I didn't realise it was still ongoing. I know that the um, a, a lot of these cases uh, have been turned around... The, in favour of the owners now, the ones that were demolished or, or, or considered illegal, they've had their cases uh, proven that now they're okay. Yeah, the problem came is what happens, Vince. You, you contract me to uh, build you a house. Um, we do a deal. I go down to the local town hall, do a uh, to go through all the paperwork with them, make sure that we're okay to build. They demand say six percent of the, the of the cost of the project in taxes. Uh, which you duly hand over. They ramp and stamp it, and uh, a few weeks later, 
with the blessing of Alicante, with your stamp on your, on your project, we can start building. Um, and architects will, live, will occasionally pass by the building site to check on it. And once or twice, the town hall will pass by to, to check on the building. I certainly pass by at the start of the building when you're putting the foundations in to make sure you're not building it too close to somewhere else. And normally you don't see them again then until the end of the job. But what did come out of the woodwork, that all these projects, and certainly all the ones that I've been working on over the years, should have been, or had to have been, ramps and stamps in Valencia, which is the, our regional headquarters. And because of this, uh, cases like the one you mentioned fell foul of the law if somebody wanted to blow the whistle. Problem being, in Valencia, there's probably about three people in an office who are supposed to ramp and stamp every project that passes on their desk. And you can imagine the sheer volume of, of construction projects that are created daily, even now, um, that it's impossible for them to do. So it's always been left to the local town hall uh, with the blessing of their, of their immediate provincial headquarters, in our case it's Alicante. But of course the community headquarters is Valencia. And it's always been uh, the unwritten rule that that's fine. If Alicante and your town all said it's fine, it is fine. And so it should be, because it does tick all the boxes necessary. The town all know exactly what the regulations are, and they will not let you build um, anything that breaks those regulations. But somehow, somewhere, somebody threw their toys out of the pram and said, wait a minute, I'm in Valencia, and you've not told me anything about this project. I don't know anything about it. Therefore, I'm going to declare it illegal, uh, which is absolute nonsense, bureaucratic nonsense, as somebody just said. Yeah. Um, I'm reading that electric cars will be the same price as petrol or diesel cars by 2027. This is a new study. Um, I mean, most people obviously know that they're expensive in comparison to the petrol or diesel counterparts. Um, but the report claims that by 2027, the electric cars will be the same price as petrol or diesel fueled cars. And um, I've looked at a comment below, and I wanted your comment on both that information and Michael Owen's written, now watch the cost of petrol and diesel cars rocket, so as the electric cars appear to be cheaper. It's a big con just to get people to switch. The power stations will not be able to produce enough energy to cope with the increased usage. What do you think about that, Terry? Oh, you're right. No, I don't see the, the, the price of petrol cars shooting up. They're, they're, they'll just, they're already stopping producing so many. Um, I suppose the law of supply and demand can say that the price could go up. But who, who I mean, I've got my car. Mine's a, well, the very first diesel I've ever bought in my life. Uh, the car I've got now is, is five years old and um, almost the minute uh, I acquired it then the, the, the they came out about the electric the, the idea that, uh, that we'll all have electric vehicles by like 2030 or something in which case diesel I won't be able to find any diesel anywhere to put in my vehicle um, and they won't want it on the road so <laughs> can I have my money back please is the question the problem is that I can see there that you haven't mentioned is that I have the right to wander around here and, and choose whatever petrol I want to put in my car. And it can vary in price. Albeit I only use good petrol, I never go the cheap ones. But you do have the right to, to shop around. You don't have the right to shop around for your electricity. It's basically just going to come from one source. 
and we all know what that one is. That's the uh, that's the source that's doubled my electric bill in the last 12 months. And uh, and as if if I've now got an electric car and my wife's got an electric car, and they're both plugged in now, you can imagine what's going to happen to my electric bill. So the electric companies are actually rubbing their hands together. Their problem, as you rightly mentioned, is where do we get all the extra electricity from that we can sell them? We have to sell them. They're going to, they're going to make fortunes, these people. Absolute fortunes. And I think what does have to happen, it's never going to happen, it does have to happen is that the government have got to start underwriting the cost of, of, of electricity that we pay for. I'm definitely seriously, seriously looking at uh, photovoltaic energy to uh, sun, sun panels, uh, ultra solar panels to uh, supply parts of my, not all of it, I never can do, parts of my electric, electrical needs. Um, but you wait and see. They'll, 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 they never lose these people. They'll start whacking taxes on it. Or they will say, yeah, you can have your solar panels, but you've got to pay a fixed amount uh, of, electric, of, of bills to the electric company every, every month, whether you use it or not. Uh, that, that will happen. I fully see that. It's a wonderful idea, great idea. Free energy. Sadly, it is not free energy. Um, okay, so just looking at some of the uh, headlines in the in the online newspapers, Spanish tourism sector cheers the return of British visitors, but warns the recovery rests on the UK lifting restrictions. That doesn't seem to be that people were that bothered about um, y you know all the things that we've had to do here uh, to make sure that the COVID didn't, didn't spread. I mean, it seemed to go back now to looking more at the um, the financial side. I mean, obviously it's important, but um, that doesn't seem to augur too well for what might happen later in the summer. It's all about the money, Vince. You know that. I've always told you that. It's all about the money. The, the Prime Minister of Spain has decided that he doesn't mind having a few more thousand people dying of COVID if it boosts the uh, tourism industry. And it's, it's as simple as that. It's as cold as that. It's as callous as that. But it always would have come down to that. But more people will die of poverty than of, than of COVID. So it's got to be about the money. Uh, my problem is, you got the UK uh, and everybody's saying, yeah, why can't we why can't we fly out to Spain? Yeah, you can now, because the Prime Minister said so in Spain. You can come to Spain. But when you get back, your Prime Minister says you've got to quarantine for 10 days because you're going to an amber country. Uh, so everyone's in who uproar about that. But read between the lines here. This week, Germany has basically banned, put Britain into the red camp. That no Britons will be allowed to go to Germany because of the uh, the new Indian um, variation of the virus. That they have, Britain is now on the red list in Germany. That can only spread to other countries of, of Europe. Um, <laughs> And will it will it trickle down to happen in Spain? I don't think so. The money says no. I uh, it, it's sad. I I try to find interesting other stories for us to discuss because um, there you know there never seems to be a full whack of really meaningful news. Although, for example, the Catalan Premier has taken the oath of office, pledging to make self determination inevitable for the region. Uh, that becomes the headline that uh, El Pais is carrying. Uh, I mean, uh, is it... Stick him in jail. I beg your pardon? Stick him in jail. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but... No, you have to. You, you have to. You, you can't say that. You are there governing your section of Spain on behalf of the government for the people, for the people of Spain, 
and for the people of your of your your particular part of the country, which is the moment we're talking about Catalonia. You can't say that you will have self-determination. You can't. You only will be allowed self-determination if the Spanish government decide you will be able to have elections. It's a bit like uh, Britain allowing Scotland to have elections. Well, they allowed them to have an election, didn't they? And they lost it. And like every every person who, find, who finally gets the election but loses it, they clamour for another one and another one and another one and another. They did it in Ireland, just the same. They did it in Holland. Uh, keep asking for more and more elections until you get the answer you want. You can't do that. That's why Britain is saying it's a generation thing, which in my mind is at least 20 years. So it's 20 years till you get the next one. Now this guy's calling, is declared that he's pledged to make his self-determination inevitable. So, well, that's fine, which means he's, he's saying that you, the, the Catalonia will have a say, which means a vote, in whether they become uh, independent of Spain or not. Well, they can't do that. You can have a vote, but it can't have any weight. You can have a, a referendum, but it cannot have any weight. Now, so far, they've not won all this hoo-ha about Catalonia being independent. They haven't won one. The, the, all the different elections they've tried to have, they've not come out with a majority. So it's it's all hoo-ha. Uh, and, and it's splitting up Spain. So if Catalonia got their way and declared independence, well... The Basque Country is certainly going to jump on that one. Mm. Uh, Madrid might as well do it. Andalusia might as well do it. Valencia province might as well do it. But um, it's you're destroying a country, and the Spanish government will not allow anybody to destroy the country. You can't do it. What they're after and what they will get will be more and more control of their province. They've already got their own police force. They'll get more and more control. That's what they're after. They're never going to get full independence, but it's a way of leverage, in my eyes, a leverage against the government to get more, retain more taxes, shall we say, because they're, they're obliged to, to collect taxes from the, the people of Catalonia and send it to the majority of it to Madrid. So I'd imagine the play will be that they retain more of those taxes to reinvest in Catalonia. I could see that happening, fine. But to actually say they're going to uh, siphon off Catalonia from the rest of Spain. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Okay, I'll play the jingle and we'll come away from Spain. Okay, so we go to the UK and Valerie Vaz, axed by Keir Starmer from the Labour front bench earlier this month, said during a TV appearance that the Prime Minister was not quite at death's door despite what the public was led to believe. Confronted by Tory MP Simon Clark over the comment on the BBC Politics live show, uh, Ms Vaz refused to withdraw the claim completely, saying, I don't know. None of us were in the room. The exchanges came as the panel discussed a stinging uh, criticism of the uh, government's response from Dominic Cummings, uh, who was due, excuse me, <coughs> who was due to give a bombshell evidence to a Commons committee on Wednesday. But after a backlash, Ms Vaz issued a statement saying, I wish to clarify my remarks and apologise. 
A Labour councillor has also been responded after accusing the Israeli government of kidnapping Palestinian children to harvest organs. Let's go to that first one, Valerie Vaz. I mean, do these politicians ever check what they're going to say? No, <laughs> because I don't have to. They're completely unaccountable. Have you realised that yet, Vince? You can <laughs> say what you want. It's parliamentary privilege, especially within the Houses of Commons. Uh, it's uh, Who was it? Somebody, one of the politicians outed another one. Because he, he, he said something in the House of Commons that he could not say out on the street because it would be done for defamation of character. Oh, right. But because you're in the House of Commons, you, you can say virtually what you want. You're protected. Uh, but that's what politicians do. Those, uh, those in government try and govern. And those in opposition spend their, li- spend their lives opposing everything, which is really, really annoying. Because uh, you get to the state that they are in the United States now. But the whole thing is if you're a Republican, you're against everything the Democrats do, and vice versa. Uh, and they just forget that they're there to govern the people on behalf of the people, not to fight amongst themselves, which is what happened before the previous uh, UK elections in 2019, if you remember. Boris tried, uh, albeit illegally, to shut down the Houses of Parliament because they just were not letting him govern. Uh, because he didn't have an outright majority, they were not letting him govern, which is... I think he was right in the reason for what he, why he wanted to do with it. He was wrong because he dragged the Queen into it um, uh, in trying to shut down Parliament. And, he, and, he, and he, it didn't happen. The Queen shut down for two days and they had to reopen again. But I could understand why he did it. And I could understand why it was necessary for him to get the majority, in which I'm sure he's very, very happy with, at the 2019 elections. And I'm sure he got that majority because the people of Britain were completely peed off with infighting in politics. They didn't want to know. And it's just been reflected again in the recent elections in the UK where the uh, the Labour Party got trounced again because all they've been talking about for the last few months is, is the price of Boris Johnson's wallpaper. What the hell do the people think the people are... Do people think they're really interested in that? No. We're interested in where our, where we're going to get our food from. How we're going to... Where we job? Is that going to be guaranteed? Our health? The kids' education? That's what we're all interested in. Not the price of Boris's wallpaper. Uh, it's outrageous what's happening in politics. And this woman, yeah, she's they all do it, Vince. You know, it's wonderful. It's it, don't forget what a politician is. Polly is many, and a, and a tick is a blood-sucking parasite. <laughs> okay, well, um, there is something which is bubbling, and it you don't see these things um, obviously quite clearly to start with, and then. The more that you actually start reading around and seeing other things that are going on. Um, I, I told you about the Labour councillor who's been suspended after accusing the originally the Israeli government of kidnapping Palestinian children to harvest their organs. Uh, this is Yusuf Yan Vermani, an ex-Blackburn with Darwin Council Executive Board member councillor. He also compared Israeli people to crocodiles during the group's annual meeting last Thursday. It's understood he's since been administratively suspended from Labour, which is set to launch a full investigation. The suspension makes him the borough's third councillor to be disciplined by the, the, by the party due to alleged anti-Semitic comments since February of last year. Um, last year, Andy Kay, a former cabinet minister, um, he... Um, uh, was a member of Blackburn with Darwin Council, also was expelled from the party over social media posts. 
One of his posts on Facebook in 2014 said that Jewish leaders are worse than Nazis, while another in 2018 said Zionists' attempts to influence our political processes is nothing short of racist in its effect on the Palestinian nation. In the same month, Tazlim Fazal, also a Blackburn councillor, was suspended over social media posts made in previous years. He also allegedly shouted murderers, murderers, murderers at an Israeli peace protest in 2014. A Labour spokesman said the Labour Party takes all complaints of anti-Semitism extremely seriously and they are fully investigated in line with our rules and procedures and any appropriate... Well, and any appropriate disciplinary uh, action is taken. Uh, that was the point I was going to actually come to, uh, is the, the fact that, you know, you read these things and, quite honestly, I don't think many people uh, who maybe uh, live in uh, maybe other parts of England or maybe don't see the composition of places like Blackburn, um, I think they really don't understand the problem. And... It doesn't surprise me that you've got this fierce anti-Semitism in areas of Britain which are tending to be mainly Arab-based. Um, have you ever been to Blackburn? Many years ago. Bloody hell, a long time ago. Not I, I noticed it. I went in, in a few pubs and back out again. Well, well, I can remember I would be about 20, 23, I would think. So we're going back a donkey's years. And I went to, to do a sales job and I parked my car to do some sales figures, you know, so I was sitting writing me figures up. I could not believe where I then felt I was because, you know, I, would, I was around the corner from a, a mosque and I just felt I was in another country. It was the first time I've ever, ever felt like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the second time when I've had a fairly similar feeling was when I got from... Uh, Birmingham Airport and I had to go from one end of Birmingham to the other and I realised just how that has become uh, totally and utterly not England as far as I'm concerned um, oh, You have to drive through the British sector in Birmingham <laughs> You have to avoid all the other sectors I mean the thing is a lot of it is our, of our own making because when we yeah. when we looked for people to uh, work the cotton mills when we looked for people to uh, work the transport systems in the 50s when we allowed people to come back in in the 1960s after Idi Amin uh, had kicked them out of Uganda um, that's where most of these people have come and they have been really allowed to ghettoise haven't they yeah well no I disagree with your, your calculations I do not think most of them have, 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 have arrived from that position I think most of them have arrived since I left the UK uh, um, back in '74, so that that, that it just didn't happen uh, when I was there. Um, I had one Indian bloke in my office, and I think there was another one we had in another part of the factory. It was a big factory, and I don't remember a lot of lot of others. But I had one Indian doctor in in my town. Um, that we just black people just didn't exist uh, in reality in where I worked and lived. So, but obviously there are areas where they, they, they congregate to, which is exactly where I've been today in Torrevieja, which is virtually British. It wouldn't surprise me if, if they had keep left signs on the middle of the road shortly, because it is predominantly British. Why? Because people migrate, they feel safer together. The whole lot is, is British down there. Every, every bit of commercial sector, every bit of advertising is all British, uh, which is wrong. 
No, it's it's the same. You mentioned the same thing that you're talking about is happening in the UK or has happened is happening here in Spain. Don't tell me Benidorm Spanish, will you? It, it can't be because we just proven that if 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 the Brits can't come here, the place dies. So um, it's it, it's it's live and let live. Vince. We shouldn't be out. We shouldn't be um, drawing lines uh, between people. We, but we can't help it. We do. As you said, you drove from Whoopi Airport across Birmingham. I know, I know myself exactly where you're looking at. There's certain roads um, which now, where, where I was went to school with me when I was 10, which was quite a very nice area part of South Birmingham, um, uh, is completely Indian now, totally Indian. Uh, you drive down on the, on the Stratford Road, you, you'd go further north, you drive on the Stratford Road into Birmingham, which is probably another three mile, and it is completely, uh, uh, I'll say black, but it really is black. It's, it's, Ethi- it's Somali, Ethiopian. And then you move further on round as you go through, you're eating uh, uh, Mosley, Balsall Heath. You see different nationalities occupying areas. So the nationalities, you can do it yourself. If you go to a foreign country, you're going to tend to live where people that speak your language and your dialect live. Well, it's uh, classic. It it's classic city urban uh, development. Um, I, I, I'm aware of that, but what what I really am alluding to now is the fact that it's an importy, it's an imported problem that you really can see be with the anti-Semitism. I'm going to I'm going to read on, then you'll probably see where, where I'm coming from. Uh, it's a 97-year-old Holocaust survivor has received a barrage a barrage, sorry, of anti-Semitic messages, including peace be upon Hitler. This is on the platform TikTok. Lily Ebert, a survivor of Auschwitz and the Nazi death marches, posted a video wishing her followers a peaceful Sabbath from her London home on May the 14th. Shortly afterwards, the account was targeted with messages of hate. Mrs. Ebert's great-grandson, who's 17, revealed all this, saying the messages included Happy Holocaust, Peace be upon Hitler, You Still Alive? And ask her if she thinks the treatment of Palestinians reminds her the treatment she got in the camps. Uh, It comes as protesters across the world call for an urgent resolution to the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Over 250 people, of course, plus now, have died, mostly Palestinians. And shocking incidents of anti-Semitism have been reported during protests, including a convoy of cars bearing Palestinian flags, which drove through a Jewish community in North London, while the passengers screamed F-U-C-K their mothers and their daughters. And this weekend, MPs and uh, campaigners condemned pro-Palestine protesters for waving signs referring to Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust, including stop doing what Hitler did to you and Israel, the new Nazi state. The problem being uh, that really it's just importing something that is a terrible problem in the Middle East into parts of the UK where that can only build hate. And I can remember um, Tony Hiller, who wrote um, Save All Your Kisses For Me and did all the songs for the Brotherhood of Man, he and I had a very private conversation. I can tell you this now because he sadly is no longer with us. He was absolutely terrified about what was happening in London. And we're going back a couple of years now. And he was telling me of some of his experiences as a Jewish guy living in London. 
and how it had been started to build up. Um, it doesn't surprise me when you look at the makeup of those particular now those particular parts of the country where you've got high uh, Pakistan and Indian population and we refer of course back to the likes of Enoch Powell and what he warned would happen and sadly I am afraid you know this doesn't help the situation especially when you've got a 97 year old um, who is being um, sort of harangued on the uh, on the social media although I'm very surprised the 97-year-old is actually on the social media. C congratulations to her. But you see, you can't, this is to be expected, Vince. You can't make people like each other. You can't make people respect each other. It just doesn't happen. If they don't like each other, they don't like each other. If they don't respect your religion and you don't respect theirs, there's always going to be animosity. But when a, a 95-year-old grandmother or a 15-year-old girl goes to use social media... She's proclaiming to the whole of the world and some idiot troll out there will pick up on it and very cleverly they can, in, they can get a lot of other people to follow and, and swamp that poor person's uh, uh, message to, of peace to the world, which it was, with this, this, this anti-Israeli hate diatribe. It's to be expected. This is, what has to be done is the control of social media, control of the press, and control of social media. The press, it was, it's proven, are not responsible. Uh, the BBC, is proven, are not responsible. Uh, social media certainly isn't, are not, isn't responsible. They're just out for whatever they can get. It has to be policed, and that is difficult when you're talking about free speech. Free speech is fine, but you, to, to, to use that free speech to demoralise other people uh, and possibly cause some other person to attack them, uh, it's shocking. Um, that poor old 95-year-old grandmother's putting out a message of peace for, uh, for, uh, for the Sabbath is, and gets that in return. Well, well I was sadly, watching. she won't understand it, but it's to be expected. I was watching a programme on, um, I think it was just a news bulletin on London, um, and basically they went to a school in London and they showed you this classroom. I don't think there was any... A leverage one way or the other politically but I think that it was just representative of many of the places in London now and you could see that there was, I don't think there was one white kid in the classroom and then the teacher who was to talking about the way that they're teaching history now sounds to me like they have got a changed curriculum and they're now beginning to indoctrinate the kids to forget the the way history was, or at least the version of it that we were brought up with. You and I will have studied fairly similar events, and it would appear now that this is changing. It's up, yeah. It's uh, cancel culture. It, it, it's wrong. History is there, whether you like it or not. There's parts of history that we, we, we don't like, um, but it's there. Um, our ancestors would have committed certain sins, but that's not my problem. Uh, it's sad and hopefully we've all learned from that in the past but um, as I said before uh, they talked about black people saying that they were slaves and taken to America the whole of Britain was, was lived under slavery the whole of Britain lived under the lord of the manor yeah. uh, and, and, and the the, uh, the serfdom that, was, that, was, that were, they were born into and had to live with no one's going around complaining about that are they? maybe we should 
It's just they've got to realise these people. They're not the only people in the world whose ancestors have lived lived under um, difficult conditions. What we have to think about is how we live in today. And how we live in today is people using social media to, to slaughter verbally people, which can then create slaughter physically. Let's just go to a former British paratrooper, 40-year-old, uh, who found himself struggling with money after leaving the army in 2004, was left living on the streets before seeking help from military charity SSAFA. In August 2017, he's a single dad, by the way, and he set off from Beach Hill Car Park in Swansea with £10 in his pocket to walk the entire coastline in the UK in a bid to raise funds for the charity that helped rebuild his life. Um, apparently, uh, appearing on the TV... Uh, Chris told how his journey was transformed after stumbling across a stray dog on the, the west coast of Scotland with the purse sticking together uh, ever since. Now, that's a nice part of the story, but the part that worries or should be something that worries people is we've been talking about how people are sort of um, complaining about their history. And then we've got people that have gone and have tried the best to protect what we do have in terms of its freedom, they come back and then you hear quite a few stories now of these guys who've served in the forces and they're then left without the support that possibly you would expect them to have um, because they've come back ravaged from, the, from the, uh, the problems they've had during the times that they've had to fight as a soldier. I find that quite sad, really, and it doesn't seem to have been totally addressed, does it? No, well, I can never understand how you can uh, demob uh, a soldier or a sailor, anybody who's been taught how to kill. A soldier's been taught how to kill with his bare hands. Um, and some of these soldiers have seen active service and have killed with their bare hands. And have killed with their machine guns, they've killed with their machetes. And you suddenly take them out of that and put them on the street as if nothing's happened. You, you, as much as they've been trained to become killers, and killers on the word of one of their superiors says, kill that per shoot that person there, and he shoots him. To, to then put them out on the streets without any thoughts of how that person may have been affected during a conflict, and without, you have to, surely, you have to untrain them, or they have to be... Uh, in, in, in the military for life I have to you can't you've created hundreds of thousands of murderers that's what that's what an army is people who will murder at the command of their superiors and it has to be done sadly because that's what war is every country has to defend itself and if you don't defend itself you've got a chance of being overtaken by another country and submitted to awful atrocities so you have to fight fire with fire punch with punch bullet with bullet but these people who defend our countries for us, whichever country you're thinking of, doesn't make any difference. They're trained to be killers. And it's beyond me how you can put them, take their rifles away, stick a suit on the back, and send them back out into a normal world. It's, it's not a normal, they've been living in a completely unnormal world. Well, I, I took... don't see any training to, to, to bring them back into city streets, as it's known. I totally agree with you. And I think that even 
uh, although it's not actually going to a country, when you've got these young hoodlums sickening, sit, sitting in front of sickening games and playing war games and killing and all that sort of thing in front of a video screen, I think there's a similarity. I mean, obviously, it's not quite the same, but I think there is a similarity, and I think that that is another danger which uh, is building up because if you've got some of the... Uh, violence that we see on the TV screen day in and day out. Uh, virtually every trailer for a new series of some there's a murder somewhere or somebody gets killed, and it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And with a lot of the minds, it would appear that there's not going to be an awful lot of um, ability to fight this. And I'm just looking at a headline uh, which has just come up on the uh, website today. The SNP in Scotland are now opening a path to decriminalising all drug use in an independent Scotland and backing increasing taxes and introducing a universal basic income uh, in radical separatist blueprint. But to go to the uh, the drugs, if you've got drugs, nobody's sort of prepared to stop that one in its tracks. And then you sit in front of these screens and uh, go through all this uh, allegedly playing, but it's video games on violence and everything. It's tailor-made for problems, and people just don't see it coming, do they? I agree with you, Vince, but at the same time, I spent a lot of my childhood running around with a, with a holster uh, and, and a six-gun, six, uh, a pistol in my, my holster, and my cowboy hat on, and going around shooting my mates. Uh, you know, with the little caps put in the in the pistol that made a great noise when you pulled the trigger. But I'm going around shooting my mates. Didn't turn me into a mass murderer. It's far more sophisticated nowadays because you've got a TV screen and it's very, very real. And I can understand that it can maybe can get into some people's brains that, wait a minute, this is reality. And they can enjoy themselves killing people, which, of course, is great because you click a button at the end of it and they're alive again. So they don't actually dead. And people can take that on the street and go around killing people, which I'm fully convinced does happen in some of these cases. You get the mass murder, mass shootings, go around killing people thinking it's just a bloody game. Yeah. It's awful. But it's, I don't know, it's respect for, you, you, you have to have respect. Everything, you have to build everything on respect for your fellow man uh, and, and take, take it from there. We've managed to survive all these hundreds of thousands of years uh, to get to this stage. But it's always been around me defending my cave and stopping you getting into my cave and, and beating you with a bone or something and defending my family. It's always been there. So violence has always been a part of our lives, always has been. Okay, well... And probably always will be in a roundabout way. Not violent, but uh, Dan Wooten has written The British spirit isn't one of sur surrender. We give up because we think we might not win. Hell no, that's why, as a patriot and pop music lover, the BBC's complete capitulation on Eurovision, which saw us receive nil point again on Saturday night with our worst ever competition song, uh, makes me sick. The crisis-ridden corporation's contempt for Eurovision might seem like the least of its worries, coming hot on the heels of the full-blown scandal and engulfing. Uh, it thanks to the despicable cover-up over how Martin Bashir procured his Panera interview with Princess Diana. But it is indicative of a much larger problem for the Beeb, which seems to have a disdain for Britain's ordinary people and our values. 
James Newman from the UK with the song Embers performs during the grand final of the 65th annual Eurovision Song Contest, uh, which of course was run uh, won by Italy. Now, um, okay, no matter what we think of uh, the contest at a personal level, I would say watching the BBC um, in the morning after was the, the, probably the worst television I've seen for a long, long time. Um, you know, we're waiting for these four people who were supposedly just come, come back with the best song in Europe, which was awful. I mean, it really was not a... When is a song not a song? And then we're told that one of them was supposed to be a snorting some sort of substance, um, and you see a picture of him going down onto the table, and the explanation was given, although he did apparently um, come through the drugs test... Um, apparently somebody dropped glass on the table so he was sort of investigating it uh, however I'm not too sure about that for myself because I don't know about you if somebody drops a glass on the table would you be putting your nose down to see what was uh, going on? It wasn't, it wasn't the glass on the table it was the glass on the floor if somebody drops a glass next to your feet you bend down to pick it up when the act of bending down your nose is next to the table well, that That's wasn't that exactly wasn't in the I, first some, report, uh, some Terry. Very, some very crafty photographer thought he got a great scoop there because he looks as if he was sniffing something on a table. Okay. How anybody would think he could get away with doing that in front of 119 million people, I don't really know. <laughs> uh, and it turns out he, he wasn't, of course. He was tested. He was completely free of all drugs. And he was just picking up some broken glass that was underneath the table. Good. So, okay. What did we think or what did you think of the song? Nice song, badly song. Uh, <laughs> as simple as that. Uh, well, our song, British song. Well, British all right, song let's go. It was a nice song, badly song. The winning song was a youngster's song. We live in its electronic boating bits. Who do you think is more or fay with anything electronic in this world? Well, certainly not us, Terry, youngsters. that's for sure. Youngsters. Youngsters. So I mean, it's done, but do you remember, was it Iceland or Finland? Well, that horrific heavy metal group that won it one year. Do you remember? I think it was Norway. Nah, it was Iceland, didn't okay. it? it was. Maybe it, maybe was, it was, it was Iceland. It, it, whatever. It, it, but it was a horrific row, bang, clatter of like, dustbins kicking down the street. It was awful. I'm not a heavy metal fan at all. I love music, but heavy metal I really, really can't get into. And I'm sure that applies to the majority of Europeans. So how they could actually win was that kids are up for it. You know yourself, kids can get things going on on the internet, they know how to click a button and they can get things going and you can imagine what happened then. Let's all get together, let's vote this firm in to win. Uh, as, as I do with a lot of reality shows on TV where people have voted on and off. Kids get together and start grouping together all of a sudden there's like 200,000 got together on a on a website and they, they start voting uh, and so with people off or on. Well, strictly, wasn't it? Strictly come dancing one year. Right. They kept voting this old, this old bugger on who couldn't couldn't walk, never mind dance. They kept voting him through. He was winning against all these other dancers who are really good dancers. He was winning week after week after week because the youngsters got together and voted him on. It's simple as that. It's, uh, it's not as true. It's not a true... Uh, uh, Reflection. Are you there, Terry? Oh, I can't believe it. It looks like... Um... It looks like Terry has gone just at the last minute. 
So uh, I've got to quickly say thank you very much indeed to Terry for joining me today. Uh, It is, of course, uh, our weekly podcast. Do join us again when Terry will be back to tell us more and probably be be right here at the end with me. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.